If uh, you are brand new, uh, my name's Michael, and I'm uh, very thankful that uh, you're here today. And if you've been coming for a while and you don't recognize me because I have beard and glasses, I'm officially now wearing bifocals. So I've, a, I've passed the age of 25, where apparently you need bifocals at uh, age 25. Um, <laughs> just passed that a year or two ago, something like that. Um, and uh, I'm sporting a beard because I've been missing my wife for about three weeks now, and she's the only one I really care about impressing, so I just figured I'd let it go. <laughs> and when she comes back, I'll have a nice clean-shaven face. <laughs> we are uh, in the midst of a, a series right now, uh, walking through the letter, Paul's letter, um, to the community in Rome. So before we uh, open uh, the scripture this morning, uh, and again, if you're brand new here today. I'm, I'm very thankful that you're here. And if you've been at least here for the past few weeks, uh, we've been walking through some pretty, uh, a tough section in Scripture. And that Scripture uh, that Paul is, is, we've been walking through, is talking about God's judgment, uh, about God's wrath, and where humanity stands in relation to God, and how we stand in relation to God's judgment. So it's been some pretty tough uh, Scripture that we have been covering. So just want to pray for us one more time that our hearts would be really open to what God has to say, uh, not just to us as a community, which God will speak uh, to us as a community, but uh, I think more specifically today, my heart is that God would really uh, speak to you. And this is who God is. He knows you, He knows you by name, and He knows the condition of your heart and soul today. And uh, my hope uh, is that every time we open Scripture, uh, God's Word speaks. And so I just pray that... Um, your heart would receive uh, from God what he has for you. So would you pray with me? Father, I give thanks that uh, you are good. Uh, God, I give thanks that you are very gracious to each of us. God, I give thanks that uh, you know just each of us very intimately. God, you know the details uh, of our story of our life. Uh, God, to the very point you know exactly where each of us are as we sit uh, here in this place today. Uh, God, I give thanks that you know us and you still love us. Uh, God, I think all of us would have to agree we give you uh, a lot of reasons why you should not love us, but you are, as Justin was talking a few minutes ago, you're just relentless in pursuing us. God, you're relentless in just loving us. So Father, today would you please uh, just open our hearts uh, to receive from you uh, everything that you would have for us. And God, for those who just need some encouragement today, I just pray, God, you would bring encouragement to those who are just really suffering from a broken heart. Uh, God, I just pray you would bring uh, the pieces of a broken heart back together, that it would be one uh, for you. Um, and God, for those of us who are just stuck in these patterns of just sin and just doing our own thing, God, I pray that you would bring freedom today, uh, not to walk in those patterns any longer, uh, but to walk in the freedom that uh, we have in knowing you. Uh, so God, would you just please bless? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So far, uh, Paul has been trying to, uh, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, uh, address his audience, his listeners, and specifically us as well, that uh, one day we're going to stand before God, and there will not be anyone who could ever stand before God and tell God, well, I just didn't know, and tried to come up with a laundry list of reasons or excuses of why we didn't live for God, worship God, honor God. No one would have any excuse. And last week, specifically, uh, we talked about uh, the morality of man, how immoral the most moral person is, uh, meaning we won't be able to flex our moral muscles before God at the end of the day and say, but look how absolutely moral I've been. Look how good I was. I think one of the things that Paul is trying to get his listeners, his audience, and I think us as well to think about almost a warning of sorts, uh, is he doesn't want anyone to get to the very end of their life, stand before God, thinking that they know God because they were very moral or did good things, and only hear the words from God, away from me, I did not know you. I mean, to me, that would be the greatest tragedy in life, is to walk through life thinking you have a relationship with God, only to get to the end of life and realize the God that you thought you related with through your works and performance and achievements and accomplishments and and just your morality, that very God would look to you and say, I, I don't know who you are. Um, and that's a humbling thing. 
I mean, that should cause each of us to pause and say, gosh, where do I stand with God? Because one day we're going to stand before him face to face, giving an account for uh, our life. Paul, last week, uh, really hit hard on morality. And uh, this week, he's hitting hard on morality's ugly stepsister uh, called religion. And um, last week was the focus on morality. This week, uh, we're looking at religiosity, meaning that we could flex our religious muscles and we can claim, well, maybe I wasn't a moral person, but I was a religious person and I was part of this religious camp or you know, I, I, my family, they were, they were Christians, and just by default of living in the same home, I'm covered because they were Christians. This idea that our religion might somehow save us or exempt us when we stand before God, uh, and Paul's response to that is, no, morality is not going to save or exempt you, and certainly religion is not going to save or exempt you as well. This is a pretty hard quote from Charles Spurgeon, but I like it. It says this, if your religion does not make you holy, it will damn you. It is simply painted pageantry to go to hell in. No one talks like that anymore. No one preaches like that anymore. The, the purity of religion is that it would lead us to, to faith, to holiness, to, to worship, to honor God, to love God. So I'm not of the mindset that religion is this evil thing. It's what we do with religion that makes it very evil. I want you to catch that. Being religious in its most purest form should lead us to worship, obey, honor, lead us to holiness. But what we have taken, as Charles Spurgeon, I think, rightly says, uh, we've just painted it as pageantry for us. That we're going not to heaven in these costumes of religion, but we're actually just walking down that path towards hell all dressed up as the religious person. I've been working in and around the church for uh, just shy of about 15 years now, and I think one of the hardest things that I've come up against is trying to convince people that you don't need religion to make you right with God. You need a relationship with God to make you right with God. The thought of, if I'm just religious enough, I'm covered. If I'm religious enough, then I'll be right with God. And trying to convince people it is not about being a religious, moral individual. It's about having a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus, because of grace, not because of my performance or, or achievements. I don't know if you've ever felt the ill effects of um, religion, but I liken it to almost a treadmill, a treadmill you just can't get off or if you have ever actually run on a treadmill. But after about five, 10 minutes, at least for me personally, I'm like, okay, I'm done. What's next? But the thing with religion is it just keeps you on this treadmill of run harder, run faster, do more and do more and do more. And you just can't get off this cycle or this treadmill with this idea of I just need to keep performing, I just need to keep doing, I need to keep achieving and accomplishing. That's what religion does, is it keeps us just on this treadmill, as it were. And I think the two principal problems, not the only problems, but the two principal problems with religion is, number one, is no matter how religious I am, it still leaves me wondering. And I think this is one of the hardest things humanity has to wonder, if you're a religious person. Have I done enough? Because you don't have an answer to that question. That is a, a, a great question that just doesn't have an answer. Because there's no answer, it leads a person to despair. If you're the religious person trying to pursue religion to get right with God, you will be plagued with this question, have I done enough? Because in your mind, it's a scale system. But you're never in complete assurance of, did I outweigh? Because I just had that thought, and that just brought me down again. Or I just did that, and that brought me down again. It's this endless cycle of, have I done enough? And I can't fathom the amount of people that go to their deathbed, and this is tragic, thinking their final thought, did I do enough? I'm on the verge of meeting my maker, and what's plaguing me right now is did I do enough to merit or earn his favor? Number two is, and this is problems with religion, is no matter how religious I am, it still leaves me separated from God. At the end of the day, it not only leaves me, leaves me wondering but it leaves me separated from God. 
I like this as a pastor in the 1940s and 50s. He was an author as well. He wrote this. There are those who are attached to form and ceremony and liturgy, religious precepts and practices, and all the attitudes that go with such attachment, and who are yet alien to the grace of God. They have ritual without redemption, works without worship, form of service without the fear of God in its proper sense, and thus they come under the condemnation of God. It's this idea of, I'm religious, therefore I'm right. And I agree with this Pastor Donald uh, Barnhouse that no, a religion does not bring redemption. God is the one, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, God provides us a righteousness from heaven that we can receive by faith. I think one of, in the first century, Paul's audience that's listening to this, the ones that are going to have the hardest time with this message is the Jewish people because they took great pride in being Jewish. They took great pride in being religious. And if you were to consider just on the surface, rightly so. If you were to look at the the Jewish nation, God's chosen people, they were sons of Abraham. By birth, born into God's chosen people, they were recipients of God's law or God's word, meaning they knew God's will. They knew God's law, God's ways. They had knowledge of this. And then the third thing that they had reason to have pride in was they had received the sign of being part of the covenant community, which is circumcision. So you couple these three things together and the Jewish nation, the Jewish community, the Jewish people had on the surface at least a right to say, gosh, look at all these things God's done for us. Now, before I actually read uh, the text we're looking at, I wanted to ask, I think, a, a pretty challenging question, and it's this. In today's culture, who are the ones in most danger of trusting the religion to save them? I want you to think about that before you come to, a, to an answer. In our culture today, who are the ones in most danger of trusting the religion, trusting their religion to make themselves right with God. Now, I'm not going to have you shout out answers, but I think for us in the Christian church, in the Protestant church, uh, I'll be honest, I'm guessing some of you had the thought, Catholics, they don't get it. Catholics, they're just trusting their religion. Some of you may have been thinking those people who don't know how to have fun but call themselves fundamentalist, I bet they're the ones that are going to be the ones who are going to have the hardest time with this because they're trusting in their religion. And I want you to catch this. It's not the Catholics. It's not the non-fun fundamentalists. I think it's the person who's going to have the hardest time, the most danger of trusting in their religion is the person who looks at you every single day in the mirror. It's easy for us to look out and be like, well, that group over there, that group over there. But I think what Paul is doing here is you need to examine yourself and not trust. You have to answer the question, are you trusting your own religion, meaning your own piety or your own traditions or whatever it might be? Are you trusting yourself to make yourself right with God? That's what religion is doing. I'm making myself right with God. I think maybe a helpful question to dovetail on that is, as you consider, um, as you're growing closer to God, and my hope is all of us here, we're growing closer in our relationship to God. So by the time we come here next week, you'll be even closer with God than you were today. So as you're growing closer to God, are you becoming more impressed with God or more impressed with yourself? Because the religious person is growing less impressed with God and more impressed with themselves of, look at what I know. Look how many Bible verses. Look how I pray. Look at my experiences. Look at all of these things I'm doing. And this is a very, very subtle shift of where you stop thinking about God per se and worshiping him and being in awe of who he is and what he's done. And you start to be enamored with the person in the mirror. 
of, well, look at me. I'm not the same person I used to be. Look at these experiences, all these things that I, I have, and we become more impressed with ourselves. So Paul is going to hit hard today on the religious man. If you trust your religion to get right with God, to bring salvation, to exempt you from God's wrath and judgment, um, you'll miss the point. You'll be wrong, and you'll stand before God condemned. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 20. I'll read it slow. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. I'll just stop there. Paul is trying to awaken in his audience, you've grown pretty impressed with yourselves. And the Jewish person would be thinking, well, clearly, we're God's chosen people. We have God's word, meaning God's law. We're part of the covenant community through circumcision. So clearly, they would have in mind, yes, we have all of these things. We can boast in our relationship with God because God loves us more than anyone else. And this is what I think in these just few verses, Paul's question to them, and I think ultimately to us, and I'll read it like this, is what God has revealed to you and what you have received, meaning God revealed things to the Jewish community. God's revealed things to you, to me, and we've received. Is the outward giving expression to what has happened inward? Is the outward giving expression to what has happened inward, or is the outward just becoming a show because there's no inward transformation taking place? This is what he's trying to pin them down on. You may look a certain way on the outside, but is the outward a genuine reflection of what's happening on the inside, or is it just pageantry? Is it just show? Are you relying just on being God's chosen? Are you relying just on the law or circumcision? I think what was beginning to happen with the Jewish community, by and large, and certainly those who pursue the way of religion, is you become a lot more, rather than being a community that worships God or obeys God, what begins to happen is we walk away from that and we have a false confidence, I'll say it again, a false confidence in the blessings of God. It's kind of a weird thing to say. Is it possible to have false confidence in the blessings of God? I think this is exactly what Paul is saying. You have been a blessed people, and now their confidence is in the blessing removed now from the God who blessed them. Does that make sense? That's what false confidence in God's blessing is. I have confidence not in God who blessed by his grace these things upon me. I have confidence in the blessing. Because I'm Jewish. I was born into this community. And Paul is trying to teach them that they're missing the point. And I think ultimately also what happens is when you start to have this false confidence in the blessings of God, you begin to think yourself more superior than everyone else. You look out at everyone else and be like, you just kind of just shake your head at everyone else. Like, oh, you don't know what it's like to be loved by God like I am. You don't know what it's like to know God's way, God's word, God's will like I do. I mentioned this earlier, but it's a very, very subtle shift from relationship with God to a religion where I'm not focused on relationship. I'm very much focused on religion. And as I was thinking about this uh, this week, anytime there's a transformation from relationship with God to more of a relationship with your religion, whatever that might be, uh, it always is fueled by the need to have other people be impressed by you. Anytime there's a shift of focusing from relationship with God to just a religion, 
it is always fueled by this need of I'm impressed with myself and I need other people to be impressed by me. I remember this is, uh, I guess, about 10 years ago. I was a first-year seminary student, and I was starting to think I was all that because I was in seminary. And um, I remember my very first semester, I was taking Greek, and I was like, wow, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with myself. I'm taking Greek. I barely can speak English all that well, and now I'm taking Greek. And uh, I remember going to church one morning. We were living in Chicago, and... Uh, I was walking out of the house with my uh, nicely blue leather uh, Greek New Testament. I never brought a new Greek New Testament to church in my entire life. And I remember walking out of the house and God saying, what are you doing? I'm going to church. Well, what's that in your hand, Michael? It's my Greek New Testament, God. Or aren't you impressed? I could just remember this conversation. Michael, do you know how to read Greek? No, I don't. <laughs> First year student, I could barely get the alphabet down. But I went to church that day with my Greek New Testament. Do you know why? Because I was so hungry. I was growing impressed by myself, and I was so hungry for other people to be impressed by me. I just wanted someone to ask me, hey, your Bible's blue. I've never seen a blue Bible before. What's the blue Bible? Well, funny you should ask. Let me tell you about my blue Bible. And I remember the first person who asked me, and I just felt like such an idiot. Because their question was, you, wow, you, you know Greek. And in good conscience, I couldn't say, well, yes, I do. I knew like four words. And I just felt so stupid for thinking I was so impressed with myself and so desirous of other people to be impressed by me. And so you want to be a pastor? No, I... I'm going to be a clown in the carnival, I think, right now because of how much of an idiot I am. My heart was not on God. My heart was on religion. I, wanted, I was impressed by myself, and I wanted other people to be impressed by me. How do I know if I'm growing in being religious or if I'm genuinely growing in my relationship with God? I really want you to know how to answer this question. How do I know if I'm growing and being a really religious person or if I'm really ultimately just growing in, in my, genuinely growing in my relationship with God? I'll give you four very quick things. Attitude towards sin. Those who are growing in the relationship with God repent of it. Those who are growing in relationship with religion justify it. Number two, attitude towards people. Do you find yourself celebrating people? Celebrating who they are, what God's doing in their life, or do you find yourself always condemning or at least being critical? Best example I could think of was John 3.16. If someone were to come up to you and say, my goodness, I, I just read this yesterday and it's totally rocked my world of God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Have you ever seen this? This is so amazing and they're so excited and they're so just passionate about John 3.16. Is your response to look at that person and enter into their celebration and say, that is such a phenomenal truth. I am so excited. Or is your reaction like, dude, that was 2,000 years ago. Like, what took you so long to discover John 3.16? The religious person will condemn and be critical of other people, where someone who's got a growing, genuine relationship with Jesus, they celebrate because they're not in competition with other people. Religious people, they're in constant competition. Well, don't outdo me. Number three, attitude towards God. Do you find yourself worshiping and just living in consistent, faithful obedience? Or do you just kind of summarize your relationship with God as just kind of distant, kind of cold? Those who are part of the religious camp, distant and cold. Those who are genuinely growing with God, in relationship with God, Worship and obedience are marks of that relationship. And the last one I'll give you, this is the difference between how do I know if I'm growing in religion or growing in relationship? Your attitude towards yourself, and this is very telling. Your attitude towards yourself. When you consider you, when you think about you, and all of us think about ourselves all the time, and we hope that the other yous around us are thinking about us as well. 
But when you think about you, are you growing in humility or are you just growing in the sense of being more and more impressed by yourself? If you're a religious person and you're growing in that, you'll find yourself impressed by who you are, what you know, and what you're doing. But if you're growing in relationship with God, you're growing in the sense of humility of, I'm nothing. I am absolutely nothing. I'm just floored that God still loves me. That is a mark of humility. If someone is growing in relationship with God, rather than someone who is just so enamored, impressed with themselves. You might not remember this prayer, but I hope you do. God, please guard my eyes from being blind to me. Please open my eyes to see who I really am, a sinner saved by grace, not a saint who thinks he's better than everyone else. That's a prayer I hope we pray. God, please help me to see me. I'm just a sinner that you love, that you've saved, that you have grace all over me. God, please protect me from growing ever enamored or impressed with myself and trying to get other people to be impressed with me as well. Romans 2, 21 through 24. As Paul is just telling this community and this community that's here today to examine themselves now with some really searching questions. Romans 2, 21 through 24. You, you, then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who harbor idols, do you rob the temple? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That would have stung. Like that one would have hurt. They would have been like, Paul, that's a low blow. To tell us religious people that we are dishonoring God, thus people are blaspheming God because of us, that would have really hurt. Paul asked five, I think, very searching questions. You who teach, do you teach yourself? You that preach against something, whether it's stealing or whatever it might be, do you do the same thing you preach against? You who instruct others not to commit adultery, do you do that? You who hate idols, do you have your own? You who boast about God's word, do you even obey it? This is a a very long way of saying a very simple point. Do you practice what you preach? Is what you claim to confess, is it actually true? Is it a reality in your life? I think what Paul is ultimately getting to is just the heart of hypocrisy, the heart of being a pretender. You say one thing, but it, where is it? You, you teach this, instruct this, you preach this, but I, I look at your life and it's so inconsistent with what you say. St. Augustine said this about hypocrisy and the pretender. The problem with the hypocrite is his motivation. He does not want to be holy. He only wants to seem to be holy. He is more concerned with his reputation for righteousness than about actually becoming righteous. And I think that's what Paul is driving at here is you want to have the appearance that you're one thing, but you're really not. You want people to look at you one way as very pious, very religious, very right with God. But Paul's point is you're actually very distant from God and people are looking at your life and blaspheming God because of you. And that's what religion does. It will just call you to maintain appearances before God and before people. It's this idea of it will ask you to keep the exterior shell very clean, but pay no attention to the interior core of who you are. I think this is hard in the church because I hope as we're in community together, one of the things we're encouraging each other to do is to keep growing to look more like Jesus. And that's a good thing. But we can take a good thing and make it a very bad thing where we feel that pressure of, gosh, I'm not as much like Jesus as the other people, so therefore I just need to start pretending. 
I want to appear spiritual just so I think people will like me more, love me more, I can fit more into the community. And so therefore, I just start pretending. I say the right things. I pray when I'm supposed to pray. I quote a verse on occasion. I throw in a big theological word every now and then. And this is, I think, what Paul is getting to in in these few verses. You can play the part of a pretender, the religious man who talks one way, but it's just vacant in his life. It's just not there. Question is, how can I avoid that? How can I avoid being the pretender? How can I be the one who just teaches one thing but does, doesn't even do what I'm teaching? How can I avoid being the hypocrite or the pretender? I've got just a few things, actually three. Number one is lead yourself first before you seek to lead anyone else. And I think that's what was happening with the community that Paul was addressing. You're a leader of other people, but yet you're failing to lead yourself. An obvious question is, well, what does it mean or what does it ultimately look like to lead yourself? And how I wrote it down is, do you live up to the same expectations you place on other people? If the answer is no, then you don't know how to lead yourself. Meaning I have expectations on all of you. Okay, whether you like it or not, and by the way, you have expectations on me. Do you actually live up to the same expectations that you place on me? Do you, do you follow up to your same expectations? A very simple example is, if I were to wrong you, I would expect that you would be gracious to me. I would expect that you would be forgiving for whatever I did. But when I've been wronged by you, Will I forgive or will I be all bitter and angry? Those who know how to lead themselves ultimately are people who are practicing what they preach. I think Paul's a great example of this when he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Meaning he knew how to lead himself. He was effective in leading others because he led himself. He put into practice Christianity. Loving Jesus, obeying Jesus, serving Jesus before he called everyone else to do what he was doing. Number two, and this is under the question of how do I avoid being the hypocrite, the pretender. Number two is teach and preach to yourself first. Lead yourself well. What you expect of others, do it. Live up to your own expectations. And number two is teach and preach to yourself first. I think the mentality that the Jewish community was having was, we're teachers, we're instructors, we're guides. And this is the pride of those who are in teaching positions. They begin to think of themselves more superior than others. You need to know what I have to say. That's the pride of the teacher. It's not for me, it's for you. It doesn't matter whether I've let this soak into who I am. You just need to know what I have to say. Teach and preach to yourself first. I get to teach every Sunday, and I love it. And I get to teach a few different times throughout the week of just spending time with different people. A constant fear and a constant question I'm asking myself is, Michael, are you just talking? Like, are you just preaching to people? Or is this actually apparent in your life? Because you just you know when you're you you know when you're being hypocritical, you know as soon as you say something, you feel that conviction, whether it's your conscience or the Holy Spirit or both working together. Wow, you're such a hypocrite! I can't believe you said that. You don't even do that yourself. Paul's point to them: lead yourself before you seek to lead others. Number two, teach and preach to yourself first. This is the you know. We can talk a mean game about many things. I can sit up here and and talk to you about men, how to be godly men, how to pursue your wives, how to love and lead and train and equip your children. But someone has to come to me and say, what's up in your home, Davis? Are you doing it? How's your relationship with Kyla? We haven't seen her in three weeks. Where is she? (laughs) 
I can preach about being generous. Well, how generous are you, Michael? I can preach about being loving and forgiving and all of these things. But I have to ask myself the examining question of, are you doing these things? Or are you just talking about them? Number three, and uh, this one hopefully makes uh, clear sense, especially with leading yourself and uh, teaching yourself first, is number three of how do you guard against being the pretender or the hypocrite? You got to confess. You got to be able to confess your stuff. The biggest fear for a hypocrite and a pretender is confessing their stuff because the person they confess to will look at them differently. They'll be found out. They'll be discovered as a pretender, and they don't want that. But if you're here today and you genuinely don't want to live the pretender lifestyle, the hypocritical lifestyle, where you say one thing but do something completely different, you have to confess. And I'm not, come, I'm not saying stand up on stage and just confess to a room. Find a trusted brother, a trusted sister, someone who's actually mature enough to know how to love you through whatever you might be confessing. But the bottom line is you need someone to confess to and someone to love you enough to hold you to the standard that you desire to grow towards. Again, quoting Spurgeon, he says this, it does not spoil your happiness to confess your sin. The unhappiness is in not making the confession. How many of us have felt the weight of, I just want to tell someone and I can't. I just wish I could get this stuff out of my head and heart and someone would really know me and where I'm at and where I'm just dying in sin. Spurgeon's point, you think to yourself, I'm just more happy if I keep it to myself. His point is, unhappiness is found in uh, being not willing uh, to confess your stuff to others. And I think Paul's point in verse 24 is people who are just practicing not what they preach, the biggest consequence of that is in verse 24, God's name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What does it mean for us to be agents of People are blaspheming God because of us. It means people are denying or rejecting who God is because of us. People look at the way we live and say, if that's the God you are with, I don't want to be with him. Because if it means being anything like you, I don't want that. And that's what was happening to the Gentiles. They were looking on the Jewish community and saying, man, if this is your God and this is who you are, I don't want anything to do with that community. The reality is we live in a culture where people are going to blaspheme God regardless of you or me. But I think the point in verse 24 is, will you be a reason or an excuse for people to blaspheme God? And this is, I hope we as a church will do this well. And if we as a church will do this well, that means we individually have to do this well, is people will look at the way we live our lives and desire to know the God we know. They will look at the way we love and forgive and give and serve They will look at us as we relate to each other as not just a clique, but an open community seeking just to love anyone and everyone. I want to be part of that. Where God is not blasphemed in our midst, God is actually worshipped and honored. Now, I'm going to move very quickly here, but Paul's audience is going to be thinking, okay, well, Clearly, we're missing the point here on a few things, but, okay, so we're missing the point on the law. We're missing the point on observing actually what we claim to profess, but at least we got circumcision. Paul, we still got circumcision, and because we're part of the covenant community, we're ultimately protected. We still have that religious aspect of, I'm covered under circumcision. There was a a famous rabbi, and uh, he said this, in the hereafter, Abraham will sit at the entrance to Gehenna, Gehenna just means hell, and permit no circumcised Israelite to descend therein. The popular thought of the day is, as long as you're circumcised, symbolic of the covenant community, you're covered. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if your life matches up with your profession. 
as long as you're circumcised, part of that covenant community, you're covered. I just somehow don't think that's Abraham's job through eternity. What a horrific job that would be, by the way. (laughs) Romans chapter 2, verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are lawbreakers. Now, I know that might seem pretty wordy right there, but what Paul is basically saying is, you think because you are circumcised that that's the point. You think because you're circumcised, you don't have to be obedient. You don't have to live a life of just worship and humility and service towards God and towards other people. God's saying that, you're, Paul is saying you're missing the point. If you really think circumcision is what makes you right with God. Now, be very quick on this, but is there a correlation between circumcision and baptism? And my answer is yes. This would be like someone who would say, well, I got baptized. Okay, well, that's great. Your life is just marked by crazy amounts of unrepented sin. Yeah, but I got baptized. I, I went underwater. Yeah, okay, that's great. I celebrate that. But does your life match a baptismed life? This is kind of the argument that the Jewish people, but I'm circumcised. Again, great, but your life does not match being part of the covenant community. Spouses, let me ask this question. Would you prefer your husband or your wife to be completely unfaithful to you, commit adultery like it's their second job, but yet still walk around wearing the ring? Would you be okay with that? This is, or would you rather have a spouse who is absolutely single-heartedly devoted to you and loves you and is faithful to you and honors the commitment and of the covenant relationship of marriage, but yet just doesn't have a ring? Which would you prefer? This is the example of those who are claiming, but look, I got a ring on. Well, yeah, but you're an adulterous cheat. But I got a ring. I don't think any spouse would ever look at their husband like, well, it's okay. I'm just thankful you're still wearing your ring. <laughs> like, no one would say that. This is the argument that Paul is trying to debunk with the religious people. is claiming that there's a sacrament within or something, um, the circumcision completely covers them. And I think Paul's point is absolutely that it doesn't. And Paul finishes in uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. And this is going to be really hard for the religious man, specifically the Jewish man, because he gets to the end and asks, is there really any advantage of being a Jew? And ultimately, what does it mean to be Jewish? And by the way, Paul was Jewish. So he's earned the right to, to say these things. 2, 28 and 29, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision uh, is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. What does it really mean to be a Jew? Well, can I just say... um, a descendant of Abraham. I'm, I'm born into the Jewish community. I've got the written code. I've got the law. I've got God's word. I'm circumcised. Is that what it really means to be a Jewish person? And Paul's point is no. It is absolutely to miss the point, to look at all of the exterior things, but yet inwardly, there's been no change or transformation. So question is, what does it mean to have a circumcised heart? 
I don't care if you're circumcised, God's saying, but I do care if your heart has been cut. If you're, and that's what circumcision means, by the way, is just a cutting. God cut the Jewish nation out from every other nation, separated them to himself. What does it mean to be cut of heart? Finish with these few verses. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. I want you to answer the question for yourself, what does it mean to be circumcised of heart? Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. I hope you're starting to get the idea. If my heart has been cut by God, if God has just cut my heart, a circumcised lifestyle, a circumcised heart, a heart that's been cut, is a heart that just loves God more than anything else. Is a heart that is committed to being obedient, is committed to being faithful, is committed to serving God and walking with God. Circumcision of the flesh just keeps me following a bunch of religious moral codes. But a heart that has genuinely been cut is not stiff-necked, meaning I don't do my own thing. I do God's thing. I love when Peter was preaching in the book of Acts, uh, as Luke records, and he's preaching the gospel. He's talking about Jesus and who Jesus is and what, what Jesus did, what Jesus accomplished. And it says in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Jesus, Lord and Christ. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I hope there would come a point in time where you stop and you say, wow, because of God and because of who I am, what do I do? There comes a point where you have to get wrecked by your own sin in view of a very holy, righteous God and say, my goodness, what shall I do? And Peter's response is gospel response. Verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch the first word? What you were doing yesterday, don't do that today. You were your own God yesterday, but today you've just discovered and has been revealed and you have received that Jesus Christ is God. Live as Jesus is your God, humbly submitted and surrendered to him. So ultimately what it means to be a circumcised heart is that I love God more than anything else. Not because I'm trying to earn God, merit God, but because God has cut my heart with his love for a sinful person like myself. Last question for you, and I'll just finish with this. The people who would be listening to Paul's letter right now, they were kind of of the mindset of, because I am this, I will certainly get that. Their fill-in-the-blank was, because I'm Jewish, I will get right standing with God, just by the fact that I'm Jewish. The law, son of Abraham, circumcision, by the fact that I am this, I will certainly get that. I just want you to fill in your blank. I really think about this, write it down. If you've, Now you're without excuse because you all got pens. <laughs> what is your fill in the blank? Because I am this, God will grant or give me this. What do you put down? Because I'm this, God's going to give me this. If you're of the religious mindset, your fill in the blank will be because I am this religious person and accomplished all of these long list of things, God will grant me what? Forgiveness, eternity, salvation, Avoidance of condemnation or God's wrath. What's your fill in the blank? If you're a religious person, that would be your response. And my, I can only say this, you would be wrong. To think that because I'm this, I'm doing this, 
God's going to give me that. Your fill in the blank, my fill in the blank, needs to be because I am a sinner, I deserve the wrath of God on my life. And it's only by God's grace that I don't get that. That's it. Because I'm a sinner, I deserve God's wrath. But because of Jesus, who bore the full weight and full wrath of God, I don't have to. I hope you're filling the blank where your confidence is, what you're trusting in, is not a list of what either your morality or your religiosity. I hope your full confidence is in Jesus, not in yourself. Please remember, you're filling the blank. Because I'm a sinner, I deserve God's wrath. That's what I deserve. That's what I should get. But that's not what God in his grace and mercy and his kindness and his just judgment gives me. He gives me forgiveness of my sins and peace with him for eternity. Spend some time uh, praying before you would come for communion. And as Justin will come and just lead us in some more worship before we close today. Where's your confidence? What are you trusting in? Are you just trusting in being religious enough or are you just trusting in the fact that God's, my relationship with God is based solely and only on Jesus Christ? Father God, I give thanks that you loved us enough. Jesus, I'll just stop with that, that you love us. I just pray, God, that that would really... Uh, seep into each of our hearts. God, that we are loved by you. We don't deserve that. We certainly couldn't merit that. Couldn't be good enough. We couldn't be religious enough. God, you just love us because of who you are, not because of who we are. God, I do pray that if there's anyone in here today that's just trusting in their works, in their performance, in their being religious. God, I just pray that uh, today would be a great day of victory of laying that down, literally just at the foot of the cross. And if that's you, I just ask that you would pray a very simple prayer of literally just confessing to God you're done with being religious and you want to walk with him in a relationship. And for those of you who've already made that decision to have a relationship with God because of Jesus, you've confessed him as Savior and Lord, confessed him as your God. And just spend some time as we worship and as you come for communion, giving thanks to God for who he is, for what he's done for you.